We've sung, we've listened to community announcements, we've given of ourselves and our money even, we've prayed, and now let's listen to the word of the Lord together as we continue in worship. And again, it's another long psalm, Psalm 106. So similar posture as what we just had in prayer, but now the invitation is to to receive the word of the Lord for you this morning. You know, the, the Bible promises that just as the rain falls and accomplishes its purpose, which we'll probably find out later this afternoon, the word of God does the same thing in our soul. It does not return empty when it falls on us. It accomplishes its purpose. So open your heart and listen now to the reading of God's word. Psalm 106, praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord? Or declare all his praise. Blessed are those who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Both we and our fathers have sinned, we have committed iniquity, we have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy, And the waters covered their adversaries, not one of them was left. Then they believed his words, and they sang his praise. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness, and God put to the test in the desert, and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. Fire also broke out in their company and the flame burned up the wicked. They made a calf in Horeb and worshiped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore, he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness and would not make their offspring and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. Then they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds and a plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and intervened and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account. For they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. 
They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes, and they were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all who held them captive. Save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. This is the reading of God's word. Let me say a a brief prayer, and then we'll lean into this a bit more. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teach us, guide us, correct us, soften us. May we see your purposes for us today through this text. It's in the name of Jesus we ask, amen. That was kind of a scandalous text now that I'm reading it aloud in public. You know, if if you ever think the Bible is a safe book, uh, read a text like that and see, see a little bit of the unfilteredness that the Bible has sometimes, particularly when, when addressing the seriousness of rebellion or sin or the human condition and how our hearts are prone to wander. Um, but in reality, you know, we don't have time to go through all 48 verses of this. And so you got to lean in somewhere. And so what we're going to lean into this morning is praise. Verse one. And the reason for that will be explained in just a moment. But just to get us started, anybody a tennis fan? Anybody watch Wimbledon the last few weeks? The most famous tennis tournament in the world, probably. Um, yesterday was the women's, or the ladies, I think they call it in Britain, the ladies' Wimbledon final between two women. And these names are hard. Sorry, I know Bible names are hard sometimes, but so are Eastern European names. I'll try this. Marketa Vandrosova became the first unseeded woman to win Wimbledon in a stunning upset over number six seed Anz Jabur on Saturday. So this is a big deal. The first unseeded woman to ever win Wimbledon in the modern era. And I was talking to a friend yesterday who really follows women's tennis. So she had her eyes glued on the TV watching this match yesterday. And as the final point was scored and Marquetta won Wimbledon, they immediately panned the camera to the stands where her family was sitting in the stands. And apparently, according to my friend, I haven't fact-checked this, but according to my friend, she was so unlikely to win that her husband didn't even fly out to London for the final match until the day before 
because he had trouble finding a cat sitter. That's how unlikely it was that she was going to win Wimbledon. So anyway, he made it out there. They cut the camera to the family in the stands right as she wins. And my friend, she said, she said it just was so interesting. She said there were two reactions that stuck out. One was, I think it was a sister. As soon as the final point was scored, she leapt up in the air and just went straight up, hands in the air and just exuberant. And then I think it was the husband. He was just as excited, but he went the opposite direction. He went straight down and just put his, his head into his hands out of disbelief. So it's interesting. She was pointing out how, you know, equal excitement, two different geographies. One went up, one went down, but they both were equally excited. And I, as I think about praise, or worship, which is what we're going to talk about this morning through Psalm 106. I think it's interesting how, how we uniquely praise God. Or to broaden it, just praise other things in life. But let's focus on God for a moment. So as we're singing songs of worship, for instance, I notice some of you love to put your hands in the air. Mike, I'm looking at particularly. I know Mike loves to put his hands in the air. Others of us, maybe put your hands behind your back. Some of you even like get very reflective and close your eyes. But you're, you're both engaging in the act of praise of God, albeit in different ways, in different geographies even, similar to how the family reacted when this woman won Wimbledon. And so today, praise the Lord is the topic. You see it, that's the first word of Psalm 106. And the Hebrew word is one word, and you know the word. Hallelujah. That's what praise the Lord in English means in Hebrew. Hallelujah. That's what the word there is. And this, this exact phrase, praise the Lord, is mentioned all throughout the Bible, all throughout the Psalms, you know, countless times. It is, in fact, the central purpose of the Psalms. It is, in fact, the central purpose of the Bible, it is, in fact, the central purpose of your life. And it is, in fact, the central purpose of all things. The central purpose of existence is the praise of the one true living God. That is the purpose of all things. And so it's right for us to take some time to focus on this topic. The praise of God is the purpose of all of existence. And in the Bible, when it's mentioned, praise the Lord, it's usually given in an imperative sense, like a command. You should praise the Lord is kind of how it would be literally translated. It's just like I tell you to stand up to sing. You know, the, the Bible says you should praise the Lord. That is where you will find your deepest connection with the most deep purpose of life and of, of existence itself. But as I say that, as, Bi as the Bible commands us to praise the Lord, I would I would also kind of sense that there might be a little bit of hesitancy towards being told to praise. Like, praise the Lord right now. Do it. You know, it kind of feels forced. It kind of feels not as if it, that's not how it's intended to be. You know, because sometimes, sometimes just the fact, just, just, the, just the trying to get to church is in and of itself a task itself. And so to force yourself to praise might be counterintuitive to what praise actually should be. You know, if you're being socially pressured into praise, 
it might not be the truest version of praise itself. So what is praise then? Let's just start there. What is praise? To think about that, let's, let's think about things around you in your everyday life that are worthy of your praise. Imagine your toilet is broken in your house and you can't fix it. So you call the guy who can fix it and he comes to your house and in an efficient, affordable, polite manner, fixes your toilet. You will praise that plumber for a job well done because he is worthy of your praise. Or picture when your favorite sports team wins a really important game. You will praise that team. Or if you have children or grandchildren and they, they get straight A's or they perform very well in their dance recital or at their baseball game, you will praise them for that. It's not something that you're command, in that moment, you're not feeling the command of, oh, I should really, I should really applaud my child for doing a j- good job in their recital. It's, no, it's an unforced response to something that is worthy of your praise, just like the plumber. It's like, no one's telling me I have to thank the plumber, but he deserves it because he fixed something that was really important that needed fixing that I couldn't do. So praise then, just to keep it really simple for us, is an unforced response to someone who is worthy to receive the praise. An unforced response to one who is worthy to receive it. And so the Bible directs us to praise the Lord. So let's, let's lean into those two things for a moment. Unforced response and worthiness. Psalm 106 says, praise the Lord. But what can we actually really give to God from ourselves? So if we're commanded and we're supposed to, and we find the most purpose in life through praising God, and that's part of why we've gathered in worship each week is to to centrally praise God together. What really are we giving to God? So picture a mother. Again, you could use a number of illustrations here. I'll just focus in on a mother for a second. Picture a mother who rightly so deserves the very best gift of appreciation from her children because she literally brought them into the world. I mean, what else more could you be praiseworthy for than actual life itself. So picture a mother who is deserving of appreciation, deserving of praise, bringing children into the world. So these little beings that grow up and that are nurtured throughout all life really should be praising or acknowledging the presence of their mother in a beautiful way, countless times, day after day, moment by moment. Imagine that just for a slight moment, I'm I'm overemphasizing this. Imagine for a moment that that mother does not get the appreciation she deserves for all that she does. And imagine there's other things happening in her life that just lead her to the place where where she's realizing, I'm not getting recognized for all that I do for my children. That mother would feel quite underappreciated, even lonely. You know, so when you think about the appreciation that comes from being praised because you're worthy to receive it, picture some other things here. Picture yourself being brought into the presence of a king. So again, we don't live in a nation with a king, but imagine, imagine you lived in ancient times 
and you're brought into the presence of the king who maybe just delivered your nation from, from the threat of evil. And you're being brought in before the king to do anything you want with that time. There's no coercion, but you got invited into the presence of the king and you wanted to show your gratitude to the king. What would you bring? Would you bring your money or your riches to give to him? Would you bring your own personal accolades or accomplishments? Would you even bring your your hopes for the kingdom or your good intentions? Would you offer yourself as a willing servant to do anything that he would want? The problem with any of those things that I just mentioned is the king already has those things. He already has countless riches. He already has servants. He already has fame and accolades and accomplishments on his own. So he actually doesn't need that from you. He doesn't need or even desire those things. And so I'm building up this point because I'm trying to discover for us anew today, what can we actually bring to God himself that he doesn't already have? What is the one thing that he desires from us as his chosen special creation as humanity? What can we bring to God that he doesn't already have or that he doesn't need, but he truly would feel praised for? It is not our good works that woo us to God or that draws God closer to us. It's not our riches or our fame that impress God. It's not even our faith or our good lives or our commitment to him that are even the best first response to God. Not even our sacrifices, not even our giving is what our first thing we should bring to God is. You know, even Peter in the New Testament said, Jesus, I'll leave everything and follow you. And did you notice that Jesus wasn't particularly impressed with that comment? I mean, yeah, I, he's like, sure, you please follow me, but that's not what I want first. It's not what I want most. Instead, throughout the Bible, God says things to Israel and then to us, things like, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. Or as Psalm 51 says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite, humble heart. And those things God will not despise, he says. Or even think about Job in Job 1.21, a famous verse where Job, having lost everything, coming before God, and he says this to God, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job, probably better than anybody else in the whole Bible, realized that there's nothing he could give God that God doesn't already have. So there's really only one thing we can honestly, genuinely give to God. Give thanks to the Lord. The one thing that leads us into a place of genuine, true praise is gratitude, thankfulness. That's that's the one thing we have to start with. And by coming to church for an hour on a Sunday morning in a place like this, one of the most simple ways to think about times like this is it retrains our heart to give thanks to God and to say thank you for giving me life. Thank you for bringing me to a place where I can see and understand that life is beautiful, that I'm dependent on you. Thank you 
for delivering me from darkness into light. Very similar to what Mike invited us to dwell on from Psalm 23, to turn our hearts back to him. That's what this one hour, maybe more so than anything else does, is it reorients our hearts and our minds back to gratitude because we forget often to give thanks for just the little things we have in our life. You know, George Herbert, he's a, a, a poet. Maybe some of you are, are poet aficionados. I'm not, but this is a famous quote from George Herbert. He says this, speaking about God, thou hast given so much to me, give one thing more, a grateful heart. Because if you have a grateful heart, your heart is naturally then wanting to lean in to praise of God and to be recipients of his goodness to you. So praise then in its truest heart is as simple as a thank you. A thank you to God. To praise is to acknowledge and to see and to say thank you. It forms our heart into one of deep thanks and gratitude. It helps put our life into proper perspective and circumstances. And when we are invited to look upon the person of Jesus week after week and through his word in our own times, we're invited to see and hear what God has done for us in the flesh time and time again. And we begin to be formed again as a new people of gratitude who live lives of grateful thanks sitting beneath the cross of Jesus, looking up at him and saying, how possibly could I repay you for what you have done for me? You know, there's a beautiful hymn that we sing from time to time called Jesus Paid It All. And it's a beautiful hymn, and it's a very catchy tune. Uh, and the next time we'll sing it, I'll probably remind us this too, but, but there's a little bit of a, I'm not gonna call it an error in the song, but there's a, there's a, we can be misguided by the next lyric. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Which is true, we do owe our lives to God, but may we not be led to be confused in that line that we actually can pay back our debt. We can't. That debt has been paid in full by Jesus. We can't actually repay that. So what can we do? We give thanks. Praise the one who paid my debt. That's what we do. So the opposite of praise then, if if praise is gratitude, in one real sense, the opposite of praise is ingratitude or fostering or holding on to a heart of bitterness or being a person who is is quick to complain, quick to point out all the little things that that might be true, but our hearts are so gravitated towards bitterness or complaining or frustration that we've lost the sense of gratefulness to God. This ruins our joy. Bitterness and complaining ruins our joy. And that's why when you get into the New Testament and Paul's writing these letters to real churches in real times, places like Galatia that I mentioned for our Bible study or Philippi or Corinth, so much of what he's talking about is the heart of like the social part of being a Christian of, you know, really be careful about what you're saying aloud. Be careful about what you're about what you're boasting in. Be careful about how you're treating one another. You know, don't gossip. Don't go around and be a busybody, Paul says. You know, instead, be a person of thanks. Be a person of gratitude. Because a, an ungrateful person falls quickly into sin. You know, so if you, picture, if you picture, you know, 
Picture yourself doing a very gracious deed to somebody, doing something that's, that's very nice and, and kind. And then we've all had moments like this where you, I don't know, you, it could be something as easy as holding the door open for somebody or letting someone into the merging lane when you're driving and you don't get the congratulatory wave back or the thank you wave back. That's, maybe that's my own pet peeve. I'll, I'll be driving with Sarah sometimes. I'll be like, where's my wave? I let you in. You know, and it's, it's like, well, my goodness, where is that heart coming from? You feel neglected, you feel underappreciated, you feel ignored. And that's how, that's how God feels when we don't give him his thanks back. Again, not that he's like needy for it like we are, but he loves gratitude because he knows that he's given us life. He knows that we're, we're dependent on him. So if you just, again, we're not going to go into all of Psalm 106. You've heard it read already. But if you look at Psalm 106, so much of the theme of Psalm 106 is Israel and the people of God being ungrateful, falling into this sin pattern of complaining or bitterness or not remembering. So let me give you just a few examples, um, point out some verses to you. So verses 7 and 13 talk about their lack of remembering what God has done for them in the past. Verse 14, it talks about how they have this wonton craving in the wilderness. And that's not wontons as in like the the Asian food that you get in soup. My wife had wonton soup this week. So it's not what different spelling of wontons here. Wonton with an A means the deliberate or unprovoked violent action. They had an unprovoked craving for something different than God. These wanton desires, they're just coming like from the depths of our sinful flesh. Verse 20, it says they, it says they exchanged God for other gods. Verse 25, it points out their lack of obedience. Verse 28 says they yoked themselves to other gods. Verse 35, it says they mixed with the nations. And so we're just invited and challenged to not be like that, to not be so quick to be filled with ingratitude or ungratefulness. And yet, in spite of all this, you maybe caught a couple of these pivots throughout the psalm where it said things like, and yet God still continued to deliver them. Or nevertheless, God drew near to them. And the psalm ends in those 43 to 48 verses at the very end. You know, nevertheless, verse 44, or verse 43 first, many times he delivered them. Verse 44, nevertheless, he looked upon them in their distress. You know, this is why when we sing about the goodness of God that we're going to talk about in just a second, but the song we sang earlier, you know, we sing of the goodness of God because he continues to come back to us even despite our ingratitude and our sin and our failing. So let's transition to those two final points here. So why is God worthy to receive our gratitude? Because of these two simple things. He is good and his steadfast love endures forever. The reason I'm choosing to focus on this one verse today is because you, I'm sure you've heard this phrase before, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. The reason you know that phrase so well is because it's repeated, I didn't write it down here, but I think it's repeated 42 times in the Psalms. And this is the first instance in the Psalms where the phrase comes up, Psalm 106. So you'll see it a couple more times in the next few. I think in Psalm 107, you'll see it again next week. But then particularly Psalm 136, if you want to read something this week that'll fill your heart with gratitude, read Psalm 136 because it's repeated 26 times. Every verse, it repeats, 
Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. So clearly there's something about the goodness of God and the steadfast love of the Lord that helps us to be grateful. John Calvin, the old theologian, said, It is only the goodness of God sensibly experienced by us which opens our mouth to celebrate his praise. Only when you taste and experience the goodness of God in your life, from little things to big things, can you then genuinely, unforced, give praise back to God. Or as A.W. Tozer says, the goodness of God is infinitely more wonderful than we will ever be able to fully comprehend. You know, so we could dwell for hours on the goodness of God, but ultimately it comes down to your experience of the goodness of God. Do you think he actually is naturally good and gravitates in goodness towards you despite your circumstances, despite your pains? Is God still good to you? And are you recognizing it in the things in your life? And then secondly, God's steadfast love. And this is, this is an electric phrase in the Bible, steadfast love. It's actually one Hebrew word that you could translate a variety of ways because it's got all this power you know, contained in and of itself. It's the Hebrew word hesed. And it's used 135 times in the Old Testament. But you could see it described a number of ways. And, and depending on your version of the Bible, you may see it described as loving kindness. You may see it described as mercy. You may see it even, even as explicitly pointed out as the covenant love of God. Talking about his loyalty and steadfast commitment to you. Did you ever notice how mercy, love, loyalty just seem to be moving in and through one another in the Bible. And it's captured in this one word, said. All of that is what is steadfast for you. That is what is continuing on for you forever. His steadfast love endures forever. It perseveres forever. This means that goodness and love are the actual real reality of what the world is supposed to experience continually. Because it will remain forever. And what remains forever must already be here in some measure. And so part of our encouragement coming together in church each week is to not only be reminded all we have to be grateful for so that we can praise God, but also to look upon that God and see his goodness and his commitment to us in love, in deep, resounding, merciful, loving, kind, covenantal love, a love you can't find anywhere else but a love that is so committed to you that there's nothing you can do to break it. Nothing you can do to ruin it. It will always be there. It will endure forever. And now as I say that, the more people I talk to, not necessarily in this church, but out in the community, those that are grasping for faith, longing for hope, but admittedly doubting about the church or about the person of Jesus, there's many people, I think, that have gotten to the place where they just don't believe that, that there could be a goodness like that in the world. That they've given up hope that, that, that God actually is as good as he says he is and that heaven will be as real and as full of that as I claim it will be. 
the Bible makes no, no reservations about, about how splendid eternity with God will be. To claim that eternity in heaven will be perfect and filled with never-ending goodness, never-ending hope, no blemishes, no death, no tears, that's an astounding claim to make that many people I've found just can't accept that there could be something that good to look forward to. And I, I kind of get it because what would, be the, like, what would be the example you could look at in our world today and say, well, I kind of have an idea of what that could be like. Everything around us has some kind of brokenness intertwined into it. So to picture something that has none of that, that's an astounding claim. Experiencing the impossible realization of goodness and love and the goodness and love of God forever in full is what heaven will be. It's not going to be fake in any way. That's not going to be creepy in any way. It's not going to be disingenuous in any way. It is going to be the fullest reality of goodness you could ever imagine. And when you put your faith in Jesus, you get a foretaste of that now. When you involve yourself in a community of people that have their faith in Jesus, you get to experience it lived out and communicated through one another. And so some people criticize heaven of being awful because all they can picture is a never-ending church service. They say, well, if, if heaven is just a never-ending church service, then you know, it takes all I can just to get there an hour each week. Why would I want to do that for all of eternity? And that's, it's misguided because even church services have, have elements that are lacking in that goodness and that love. But heaven, heaven somehow does not lack any of that. Heaven is praise multiplied exponentially in goodness. And so I come back to a, a quote from C.S. Lewis where he says, someday you will be old enough to start reading fairy tales again. You know, I, I, I put my kids uh, through a, a series of questioning this week to test this theory because I have this theory that kids understand heaven better than adults do. So I asked him, I said, Nora and Clara, do you believe heaven is gonna be really good? Oh, yes. Do you, believe, do you believe heaven's gonna be perfect? Oh, yes. Do you look forward to heaven more than anything else? Yes, yes, I do. And it's not that I've taught on heaven to them, it's just that they can picture beauty and goodness fulfilled because they haven't experienced the full brokenness of the world yet. There's an innocence there. But as Lewis says, someday you'll be old enough to start reading those fairy tales again and have your heart grabbed by those same realities of a full deliverance, of a peaceful kingdom, of an eternal delight where the story ends and it says they lived happily ever after. And that's our destiny with God. So as as Mike read during the prayer time, Psalm 23 ends with surely goodness and mercy. It's that same word, hesed. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So as we finish the service, we're gonna finish by singing two songs of gratitude in light of what we've already sung about, the goodness of God and in his everlasting love. So would you allow your heart this morning to find deep gratitude in the person of Jesus who lived the life you could never live, who died the death that you deserve, who rose on the third day to defeat sin and death forever. 
And may you give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Amen.